Um, good morning, everyone. Um, like Susan said, my name is Ellie Stackhouse, um, and it is just a real privilege and a joy to be back in this space. Um, when I moved back to Fort Worth two years ago, um, I knew Trinity was where I wanted to be just because of RUF connections, um, but I feel like it was this morning Bible study group that um, really made Trinity feel like a place that I was going to call home in Fort Worth. Um, and so scheduling wise, it makes more sense for me to be at the evening Bible study this semester. I um, am going to class right after this, hence the giant backpack in the corner. Um, but I am really thankful for the opportunity just to be able to be here um, and to teach this morning. Um, and like Susan said, um, I got to study the Pentateuch all summer long in a class. Um, and so when she said this is what we were studying um, this semester, I wigged out a little bit. I was very excited. Um, these are books that are hard. They're really dense. Some stuff is really confusing and weird, but they're also beautiful. Um, and it really is God's way of introducing himself to his people um, in real time um, and also for us. Um, so I'm really excited just about all that opportunity. Um, so like Susan said, grew up in Fort Worth, went off to college in North Carolina. Um, and then when I worked for Reformed University Fellowship, I did that at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And it's one of those experiences living in Knoxville that I um, want to kind of use to frame our time today. So I'm not sure if you've heard or if you really even care, but college football is back. <laughs> and if, even if you don't pay attention, it is almost impossible to avoid Tennessee football mania if you've spent any time, amount of time in Knoxville. Um, I think just kind of a quick fact that kind of helps put this obsession in perspective. So Neyland is the big stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee, and it seats 1,245, or sorry, 1,200, or 101,245, Oh my gosh, I cannot read the number this morning. One moment. Um, it sees over 100,000 people. <laughs> there we go. Sorry, everyone. Um, and what it does is it sees only 300 less than A&M's Kyle Field. But A&M's Kyle, A&M has 40,000 more students than the University of Tennessee does. That's absolutely insane, just kind of that ratio and that comparison. Um, and one of the mantras that often gets tossed around during football season is this phrase, feels like 98. And this is not a reference to the temperature. Um, it's not a reference to aging or feeling like a 98-year-old person, but it is a reference to the year 1998 and more specifically, it's football season. So let me catch you up. The setting is the year 1998, the place, Knoxville, Tennessee, we've established that. And the problem is that Peyton Manning, it's probably someone you've heard of before, the star quarterback has just graduated and expectations for the Tennessee Volunteers are very low. Everyone has kind of written it off as this rebuilding year. But this main character kind of emerges from the narrative. It's this man who's the coach at the time, a guy named Philip Fulmer, and legends get told about him like crazy, weird antics in the locker room. He gets known for carrying around this thing he called a synergy stick. It was basically like the staff that he would like march onto the field with. And a player started kind of making all these comparisons to Moses and his staff. And once I heard that, I was like, okay, yes, this is the illustration that I need to use. Philip Fulmer is known as the deliverer of Tennessee football because miraculously, despite being written off, Tennessee manages to pull off the perfect season complete with dramatic comeback wins against rivals and a national championship. So in Knoxville, you will hear the phrase, feels like 98, most often when there's a glimmer of hope that Tennessee is going to relive the glory they experienced that magical year when they went 13-0 and won the BCS national championship. Anything that makes a fan feel like maybe this is more than a rebuilding year, they secure a good re recruit. Feels like 98. They are ranked in some poll, feels like 98. They win literally even just like two games in a row. Feels like 98. <laughs> they rehire Philip Fulmer as the athletic director. 
it feels like 98. <laughs> Every minor success has an element of reminiscence and nostalgia. It's connected to a bigger narrative in which the success of the past is what builds excitement and expectation for what might reveal uh, what might happen in the future. All Tennessee fans are looking out for the familiar signs and patterns that reveal that this season could be like the miraculous one. And spoiler alert, nothing has really yet to come close. <laughs> but still they wait, they reminisce, and they hope, always using 1998 as a comparison. And one of the greatest ironies for me is that 1998 was 23 years ago. So the students that taught me this phase in 2015, who cling to the memories of this season, who put this phrase as the caption on their game day pictures, they wear it on t-shirts, they have no personal memories of this season. They were in diapers like Henry here. They were, or some of them honestly were not even born. But because they identify as Tennessee fans, they still get to claim this story as their own. Because Tennessee was successful once, they trust and hope that Tennessee can be successful again. And despite heartbreak and scandal, they cling to the legend of the 1998 season and hope for a repeat of its glory. Tennessee fans tell the story of the 1998 season over and over again to shape their identity as Tennessee fans and to spark hope for future success. And like Nancy Guthrie identifies in the teaching chapter for this week, Tennessee fans are seeking to write into their lives some greater storyline. There is glory in the 1998 season and being connected to it. And I don't think that anyone in this room is a diehard Tennessee fan, myself included, but I do think that we can relate to this idea of seeking glory and connection through the accomplishments of others. Whether it's your own favorite sports teams, the connections that you have as a family, the success of your children, we love to live in and retell stories of success, both as a source of identity and hope. And I begin this way because I think the story we encounter in the opening chapters of Exodus is intended to function just this way for the people of God. Exodus tells the story of God's great rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. And it's a story that gets told over and over again to shape the Israelites' identity and hope. And when I say over and over again, I mean over and over again. Just in the Psalms alone, Exodus is alluded to Psalm 29, Psalm 77, Psalm 78, 95, 105, 106, 114, 135, 136. I'm honestly sure I even missed a couple. Um, and it gets retold not only because it's a dramatic story that's epic and compelling. I mean, those opening chapters that we got to read for this week, really they read like a movie script. Um, but it also reveals the character of God and sets a precedent for how he relates to uh, relates in covenant to his people. It sets a pattern for how God will restore and redeem his people so that when God works redemptively in the future, his people will recognize him. The ancient Israelites waiting centuries for rescue and redemption, they stay connected to this story because it fuels their hope and it keeps them alert for things that feel like Yahweh, feel like God's rescue, feel like Exodus. We are called to stay connected to this story because it's our family story. It shows us the consistency of God's intentions and like Susan talked about if you were with us last week, it informs and establishes the patterns and the character of God's people, God's enemies, and God himself so that we can recognize and learn from these themes. Like all good stories, Moses begins Exodus by establishing the setting, the problem, and the characters. And that is how I kind of wanted to divide our focus for the rest of our time today. There's so much rich stuff going on in these first four chapters that I know we're really gonna barely scratch the surface this morning. Um, but even if you are completely, um, but I, I, I really hope to compel you to make Exodus part of the story from which you draw identity and hope. So I kind of am going to liken our time to a butterfly hopping from flower to flower. We're just going get, to get the nectar from here over here, get the nectar from over here. Um, it might feel a little sporadic, but like I said, 
um, I really want you to see Exodus um, as a story where you can draw identity and hope from. Maybe you can kind of see it like a Tennessee fan sees the 1998 football season. Um, so first, the setting. The opening chapters of Exodus tell a story of people waiting for God. There is a lot of context being established for us in the opening. Um, it reads, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. It goes on to name all the sons of Israel, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. If you participated in Bible study last year, you are familiar with the end of Genesis. You recognize that we are picking up right where we left off. Susan kind of fleshed out this timeline for us last week, so I won't spend too much time here. But I think that as the people of God, it is important and good for us to revisit our story, our origin story, as often as we can. So here are some quick highlights just to review. Um, Jacob and his sons had come to Egypt to escape famine, and they are welcomed and cared for by their youngest brother, Joseph, who had previously been sold by those older brothers into slavery. And in this miraculous and divine sequence of events, Joseph has ascended the ranks of the Egyptian government, and he's able to prepare a place for his family to escape the famine and to find a new home in Egypt. This story is told in Genesis 37 through 50. But we kind of need to go back a few more generations to realize why we even care about Joseph and his descendants in the first place. Yes, the story has plots worthy of a soap opera, but what is unique and special about Jacob and his descendants? Well, in Genesis 12, God establishes a covenant with a man named Abraham, who is Jacob's grandfather. In it, God promises to show Abraham a land in which his descendants will become a great nation, not just so that their name will be great, but so that in them all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Even though God is interacting with a specific individual in a particular place and a particular time, he already had you and me in mind. I absolutely love that truth. The promise between God and Abraham is deeply personal, but it's also launching God's redemptive mission in the whole world. The covenant with Abraham is again repeated and established in Genesis 17. What is a covenant exactly? That's a word that's gonna get thrown around a lot this semester. Um, and I think it's one of those Christian-y words that we just say without really putting a lot of definition behind. So um, an easy way that um, a seminary professor defined it for me um, is to see biblical covenants as a commitment that is more personal than a contract, but more permanent than a relationship. I think I'll repeat that just um, for the sake of having it stick a little bit better, but a covenant is a commitment that's more personal than a contract, but more permanent than a relationship. And this is how God longs to relate to us personally and permanently. Um, that is, yeah, that's good news. I mean, we could close in prayer right there. <laughs> um, we've already, hi already highlighted that God's covenant with Abraham was for the blessing of all people, but God also makes two promises regarding how he is going to make this happen. So first, fruitfulness. God says, I made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And then the second thing he promises is land. And I will give to you and your offsprings the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan. Through the remainder of Genesis, we see God continue to pursue this covenant relationship with his people. These are the stories that we studied together last fall as we learned about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when we left God's people in Genesis, they had arrived in Egypt fresh off of Joseph's rescue, eager for God. But in Exodus 1, we see that generations have passed and we find the Israelites waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And not just waiting, but actively struggling. So here we come to our next point, the problem. Exodus 1 goes on to tell us that the good graces and the privileges that Joseph had acquired for his people are now completely gone under the leadership of a new pharaoh. 
and the fruitfulness and strength that the Israelites had acquired in Egypt for the Israelites. Um, this is kind of what they expected, right? Like fruitfulness, okay. Maybe like things are not going so great, but we're still multiplying, we're still becoming strong. But um, this is the manifestation of God's covenant promises. But Egyptian leaders are perceiving things in a very different way. For them, it feels like a threat to their power and security. And like we have seen across human history, what do those in charge do when they feel like their power is being threatened? They respond with oppression. We find the Israelites in Exodus 1 in bondage, made to work ruthlessly, bitter lives with hard service, the text says. But Pharaoh does not stop there, he persists. Slavery is not enough to decrease the Israelite strength and put Pharaoh at ease. He goes further, calling on the midwives to kill Hebrew baby boys. When that doesn't get the results he wants because the midwives, the text say, fear God and lie to the authorities, Pharaoh then directly instructs people to cast the male babies into the Nile River. Not surprisingly, this is a traumatic reality for the Israelites, and all of Pharaoh's schemes of injustice and ruthlessness start to call God's faithfulness into question for them. How do people not only trapped in slavery, but also victims of an ethnic cleansing become fruitful and multiply? and receive a land promised to them so that they can become a new nation through which all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Seems like quite the contradiction. The Israelite circumstances don't match their expectation for God's promises. And even though in Genesis 15, God communicated that a period of captivity would meet Abraham's descendants, the reality of their brutal treatment causes the Israelites to cry out for mercy and relief. If we fast forward a little bit to the original audience that would have been hearing this story retold to them and for them, we find a people also in a circumstance that doesn't really seem to match God's promises. The Israelites post-Exodus wandering in the desert, waiting to receive the land and the nationhood that they have been promised, but we'll hear more about them as the semester continues. The problem presented shows that Exodus is God's message to a people who are in situations that feel hopeless, that look dire and dim, yet have God's promise of rescue to cling to. God provides an example of himself working through a historical context and situation to illustrate who he is and how we can trust him. It is a story of rescue that he wants to invite us all to identify with as a source of identity and hope. So who are the main characters of this story? Well, first, Israel. From our time looking at the setting and the problem, we've already had a pretty good look at the Israelites and their role in this story. They are a people set apart to bring God's blessing to the world but right now they find themselves trapped and under cruel bondage. And I think it's fair to say that this is where many of us find ourselves today. We know that God has promised, has, we know what God has promised, but we look around at our lives and we do not see it reflected. We feel enslaved by circumstances um, that seem unchangeable. Maybe it's our own struggles with mental health. Maybe it's our own sinful behaviors. Maybe it's the struggles of a loved one. Um, we feel um, enslaved by demands from life that we just cannot keep up with. We feel enslaved by seasons of deep discontentment with ourselves and our circumstances. And Romans 8, 22 through 25 speaks to us in this moment. It reads, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are groaning with creation for rescue, for the restoration of all things that we know is ours in Christ, but yet feels so far away. Romans goes on to say, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope, is not, er, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The call of hope is to wait with patience, to trust God hears our cries and is working on our behalf, 
because he has promised to relate to us personally and permanently. And unlike the Israelites, we have the finished work of Christ to rest in and encourage us when things feel hopeless. The next character I want to introduce us to is Moses. You're probably wondering when I was going to get to him. He's kind of a big deal. And at the beginning of chapter 2, we are introduced to this man who is going to be a key figure as God develops and lives out his covenant relationship with his people. We learn of a woman who, in the defiance of Pharaoh's decree, rescues her son by putting him in a basket and resting him in a riverbank. And under the watchful eye of his sister, this baby is found by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses' sister invites Pharaoh's daughter to use her own mother to nurse the child, meaning that Moses spends some key developmental time with his birth family, and then he moves on to Pharaoh's house. Moses' name means he who draws out of. Already we get a sign that he's going to deliver something from something. <laughs> this story and blended upbringing makes Moses uniquely suited for the role of deliverer that God has for him. He is nursed by his birth mother, so he knows his own culture, his heritage. He develops a heart for the Hebrew people and their struggles. But then he is raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, meaning that he is given a life of privilege and opportunity that no other Hebrew would have been given as a slave. His life as the grandson of Pharaoh gives him opportunities to learn how to read and write, which is pretty important because he's going to write down the Pentateuch for us. It also gives him unique insight into the customs and language and rules of Egyptian royalty and government, which will help him navigate what God has for him next. Um, a lot of times in uh, RUF, working in college ministry, we would encourage students to recognize their spheres of influence. What this means is it's looking at the parts of your life that you maybe sometimes even take for granted and seeing them through a missional lens. The invitation is for us to see all of life as God-ordained and God-usable. What of your privilege, like Moses, can be used for blessing others through resources, connections, or cultural understanding of how systems and institutions work? What of your upbringing and life circumstances can be used for blessing others through empathy, through understanding, patience, and sitting with people, sharing more than just platitudes with them? What of your unique gifts can be used to bless the unique needs of your neighbors in church? The purposefulness in Moses' life circumstances, I think, are an invitation to us to recognize the purposefulness in our own life circumstances. But it's equally important for us to recognize that Moses must first be delivered before he himself can save the Israelites as a deliverer. In Exodus 2:11, Moses acts on behalf of the Hebrew people by taking matters into his own hands and it has disastrous ends. He murders an Egyptian who he finds mistreating one of the Hebrew slaves. Out of fear of being caught by Pharaoh, he flees Egypt, hiding out in the land of Midian for 40 years. It's a long time to be in hiding. God must seek him out and invite him to participate in the rescue, not on Moses' terms, but on God's own terms. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Even in our introduction to Moses, it is clear that he will be an effective deliverer, but a flawed deliverer. I mean, within 14 verses, he's murdered someone and has fled in fear. <laughs> when, God approaches his, um, when God approaches him, promising to be with him and to empower him, to confront Pharaoh on Moses on um, the people's behalf, right? Moses responds with fear and doubt, and he demands that Aaron serve as his mouthpiece. Even though God has said, I'm equipping you to do this thing, Moses says, mm, I don't think so, <laughs> which seems pretty brash. <laughs> it is beautiful to see God use Moses, but we know that a greater deliverer, mediator, and prophet is needed. And then the last character that I want to introduce us to in this story is Yahweh. And it's pretty clear throughout Exodus that Yahweh is the main character of this story. Thematically, commentators and scholars often agree that Exodus is about coming to a personal knowledge of God. 
For a people in waiting in the midst of a dire and dim situation, Exodus introduces us to who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob claims to be, but also who he proves and shows himself to be. In Exodus 3.13, Moses wants to know who is calling him to have authority and sending him to rescue the Hebrew people. He asks God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God introduces himself by saying to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. It's a cool moment, but also, what? <laughs> if you asked someone for their name and they said, I am who I am, you probably would still want to know their name. <laughs> it has so much authority, and it, um, and it commands such a presence. I don't know if anyone else is familiar with The Prince of Egypt, the DreamWorks cartoon movie, but I automatically get taken to that scene um, and the way that the wind is blowing and um, Moses is just kind of flustered and all over the place. Um, but there's just so much power in that phrase. Um, but it's also a confusing one, and that is for a myriad of reasons that we don't have time to get into, um, reasons of translation, our modern day philosophy, kind of how we understand statements like this and culture, and a lot of ink has been spilt trying to figure out this divine introduction and name. But I think that scholarship has kind of come to three um, conclusions about the divine name that I think are helpful to be shared. So there are kind of three ways to understand this statement, I am who I am, I am has sent me to you. And one is to kind of see it as God saying, I will be who I will be. And this is purely an ontological statement. I am the self-existent one. God has set me apart, or God is set apart just because of the nature of his being. So it's just about God being able to say, there's nobody like me. Um, I am who I am. But then there's a second way to understand it, kind of if we read it, I am who I am. It's a statement of presence and help. I am the God who will be with you. And then the third way to read, it, to read it is to see it as saying, I will cause to be what I will cause to be. And this is a statement of independent existence and thus sovereignty and an ability to help. God's name communicates his promise, his presence, his relationship. Um, unpacking it alone could be its own sermon, but I hope that's kind of a helpful glimpse at what's going on there. Um, Yahweh then continues by saying to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God, of your, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Here he is connecting and framing his current interaction with Moses through his covenant relationship with the Israelites. He is claiming that I will be with you um, just as I was with them. He's inviting them to remember the story and to actively participate in it. But as the Lord of all who spoke creation into existence, we can trust that what God claims to be in word, he also accomplishes in action. And already in the introduction to Moses' um, story in the Exodus, we see this taking place. Um, we see that God's relationship to us in covenant is personal and permanent, and so we know that he will work on our behalf. We see this first in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, in God's response to Israelites' cry for, or the Israelites' cry for mercy. It is noted in the response that um, the response to these cries, God, he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. And from there, he reaches out to Moses and begins their rescue. These verbs are repeated again in Exodus 3, 7 through 10. Yahweh says that he has seen the afflictions of his people. He's heard their cry. He knows their suffering. He heard their cry. He's seen oppression of the Egyptians, and he is posed to respond. How rare is it for us in this life to fe feel heard? Um, heard by our children, heard by coworkers, by parents, heard by significant others. How rare for us in this life um, are we remembered? 
on our birthdays, on hard anniversaries, um, maybe even sometimes just to be included or invited to things. How rare is it for us in this life to be seen for who we truly are and not just as a means to an end, as a source of a meal for a family, as a chauffeur, as a woman who can be counted on to get something done but never thanked. And how rare is it for us in this life to be fully and deeply known and loved? All Israel has to do is cry out and God relates to them in these deeply personal and desired ways. I see that as an invitation to present my burdens to the Lord and to trust that he will relate to me in these ways as well. We also see God's power on display in Exodus 4, 1 through 9. We see a number of miraculous signs that put God's power on full display. The staff turns into a snake. The hand is leprous and then clean. God is really just kind of showing off in a way that only God can do. In Exodus 4:22, we see God's power on display in his demands and in his claims against Pharaoh. It reads, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. God is jealous for his people. He knows they belong to him, and he is willing to display immense power to make that true once more. So those are our characters, God, Moses, and Yahweh. But as we wrap up, I want to return to that phrase of the Tennessee fan, feels like 98, because I think that same nostalgic and hopeful response is the ways that Jews in and around Jesus's day would have approached Jesus's story. The parallels between Christ and Moses are truly miraculous. Some of you, I'm sure, went through the chart as part of the homework this week, um, but if you didn't get to it, I included it in the handout just because I thought it was so helpful and so beautiful. I like want to read the chart every day. I just think it's just the coolest. Um, as part of Jesus' story gets revealed and shared, I can't help but imagine the Jewish people saying to each other, hey, this feels like Exodus. Matthew 2, 1, 16, Luke 24, 21, all this is setting this historical context that Jesus was born under the dominion of a hostile power threatening to kill all male infants. That feels like Exodus. Matthew 1, 21 tells us that Jesus is given a name to match his destiny. Um, his, name's, his name means, for he will save his people from their sins. That feels like Exodus. Philippians 2, 6-7 reminds us that Jesus leaves his status and equality with God in order to take on the form of a servant. That feels like Exodus. And though Jesus feels like Exodus, his work of deliverance is so much more. He has none of Moses' limitations, makes none of his mistakes. His rescue is both physical and spiritual. It is completed and it is a full experience of God's covenant promise of that personal and permanent, permanent relationship. But full recognition and appreciation of Yahweh, who he is and how he works, comes only when we are familiar with his whole story, his whole name and his character. Um, a couple years ago, the Kimball did an exhibit um, of Claude Monet, and they did Monet across time. I don't know if y'all had the privilege of being able to see it. It's probably my favorite thing that the Kimball has ever done. Um, but I love being able to see an artist's work from the beginning all the way to the end of his career. And I think that's kind of what we're being invited to do in this study. Um, Claude Monet's work at the end was so reminiscent of his work at the beginning, but it looked radically different. The colors he chose were different, um, part of it is because he was going blind, but his life experiences had just radically changed everything. But to see kind of the course and the timeline of his work um, really, I think, gives you a fuller picture of the artist. And that's what we're being invited to do with God this semester. Um, I recently got the opportunity also to visit my brother in Washington, D.C. over Labor Day weekend. And he called me out and said that I must have been re-watching one of our favorite TV shows when we were together. 
and he was right, but how did he know? Well, one of the main characters in the TV show community uses this phrase over and over again. He kind of just responds to everything by saying, cool, cool, cool. And apparently that is how I was responding to everything over the weekend in DC. Um, and that is just something that is really, I, when I watch a TV show, when I get really into a book, it really quickly becomes the lens with which I view everything around me. Um, everything becomes an opportunity for a 30 Rock reference or everything suddenly relates back to Harry Potter. Um, and I think one of the invitations of scripture is to become so saturated in the stories of Exodus that they become the lens with which we view the world. That is why it is retold so many times in the Psalms and in the New Testament. When we are saturated in the story, if a situation looks dire and dim or we feel trapped or we feel unworthy of rescue, we see that experience not through our own limitations and mistakes, but instead through the lens of who God is and the way he rescues us for personal and permanent relationship. Like Nancy says, the more your story is about this rescue from bondage, this savior God sent, this God who has come down and revealed himself, the less your story will be about you and your failures or achievements, your abilities or your inadequacies, your circumstances, opinions, or questions. We need to be reminded of who God is and his faithfulness on our behalf. The invitation to do so is to engage with this story so much that you make it our that we make it our own. This is the true glory apart from ourselves that we long for. It is the source of fulfilling identity and permanent hope. And then thanks be to God for it. We've recently been singing one of my all-time favorite hymns a lot more often at Trinity, Hast Thou Seen Him, Heard Him, Known Him. And the language of it is a little clunky the first time you hear it, um, but I think it's absolutely beautiful. And if um, you've been paying attention, those verbs should sound pretty familiar to us. Hast thou seen him? Hast thou heard him? Hast thou known him? Um, these are the verbs uh, that, Yahweh, that captures Yahweh's response to his people's cry for help. And I think the call for us is to respond similarly, not by launching a camp campaign of rescue or doing a big thing for God, but like the hymn says, letting God's peerless worth capture our hearts and become our identity and our hope. Exodus is a journey of, ca of God capturing our hearts. As we see his work meet our needs, might we be captivated by the beauty of this story and might we crown him as an unrivaled king, personally and permanently? Might he draw us away from any other narrative or identity that we might fashion for ourselves in this? So thank you all. Um, I'll close us in prayer and then we'll um, get to small groups. Um, Heavenly Father God, I thank you um, just for the story that you invite us to participate in. I thank you that you are an unrivaled king and that you care for us personally and permanently um, and that we have the, um, the true and sure knowledge of that in the work of your son. Um, might we see this story as our own? Might we cling to it when things feel hopeless uh, because we know that we are never without hope in you? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. So good. Um,